This is a day that we come together to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there are lots of places in Scripture that we could go to and find verses that would amplify this. But I want to begin in a place that's a little bit unusual that I've never started an Easter message with. And that's in Luke's Gospel, the ninth chapter, and verse 51. Luke's Gospel, the ninth chapter, verse 51, and, and it says this. As the time approached for him, that is Jesus, to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now this time for him to be taken into heaven would include the crucifixion, the resurrection, and then his ascension. But there came a point in the life and the ministry of Jesus, a pivotal point where he sets his direction for Jerusalem and knowing exactly what awaits him. Now, this whole ninth chapter of Luke, if you've got your Bible still open there, you can, if your Bible has headings in it, you see that the ninth chapter is a, a major league chapter in Scripture. Jesus sends out the 12. In other words, he's been with them for a long time. Now he's sending them out to, to try to, you know, they've had the on-the-job training. Now they go out and they try it and they come back so that Jesus is able to give a little give and take because the time's coming, he knows, when he'll be gone and they will carry on with the church. He also feeds the 5,000, that great miracle of feeding with just, just a little bit. He expanded it to feed over 5,000 people, a huge miracle showing his power and his ability to provide for every need. There's Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ and the Son of the living God, a powerful profession, a pivotal point in the life of Peter and the disciples. You see all these, these events now. Chapter 9 is that, is that watershed chapter in Luke's gospel that helps us to see what's going to take place coming up. And then there's a transfiguration. Now that's a pretty fancy word. But basically Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him up onto a mountain. And there he was transfigured. In other words, he was seen in his glory. They had seen him in his human form. They'd never seen him glorified in that way. And there he was with Moses and Elijah. And it was an overwhelming experience for those three in his inner circle who got to see it. He casts out a very violent spirit out of a little boy. He talks to his disciples about what greatness, true greatness means in the kingdom of God. It's not what they see exhibited in, in the rulers of their day, but it's actually in serving others. All those things precede verse 51, where it says that he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Now, Here's the deal. Jesus knew exactly what awaited him in Jerusalem. He had been there many times with his disciples, but this time would be different. He knew what would take place. Now, it would all begin well enough. We celebrated last Sunday, Palm Sunday. We celebrated Jesus entering into Jerusalem with shouts of Hosanna. 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But those hosannas would quickly fade during the week and become a different cry altogether. Jesus would be betrayed by one of his twelve. He would be arrested. One in his inner circle would deny him not once, not twice, but three times. He would be condemned in a mock trial, beaten unmercifully, humiliated in every way that they could imagine, and finally crucified on a cruel wooden cross between two common criminals. His body would be taken down, laid in a borrowed tomb, sealed with a stone, with Roman guards posted. This, Jesus knew, awaited him in Jerusalem. And that's what makes chapter 9, verse 51, such a pivotal moment. It was God's perfect timing. It is why Jesus came for this moment. He had done all the things that needed to be done up to this time, had taught all the things that needed to be taught up to this time. And in this verse, we see Jesus turns his face, literally his face to Jerusalem. It was a flint-like determination that he would go, that he would fulfill the plan and the purpose of his father, no matter what it cost. But you see, he knew the cost was even higher than those things we mentioned. That's bad enough. If someone told you when you went to, next time you went to Athens, these things were going to happen to you, well, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be looking forward to it too much. You'd be setting your face towards Milledgeville or somewhere else, anywhere but Athens. But Jesus knew all these things would occur, and one thing greater than them all. And this is what we often overlook. We often think of the anguish of that Passion Week. And if any of you have seen the, the movie, The Passion of the Christ, that's probably depicted more accurately there than in any other movie. The suffering, the physical suffering that Jesus endured. But the greatest suffering, the greatest pain that Jesus bore was when he took our sins upon himself on the cross. Something that the people couldn't see. But it was at that moment when Jesus took our sins, the full weight of of the sins of humanity upon himself, having known no sin in his life up to that point, never having sinned for all eternity, always in perfect harmony with his Father, always in perfect unity with his Father, perfect fellowship with his Father. At that moment, when he took the sins of humanity upon himself, he knew for the first time in all eternity actual separation from his Father. The anguish of sin and bearing not just my sin, not just your sin, but the sin of the world upon himself in that moment 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was not a cry for lack of faith in his own father. It was an acknowledgement of the separation caused by our sin. The weight of the sin of the world was upon him as he hung on that cross. It is very accurate to say, as some have, that it was not the nails that held Jesus to the cross, but his love for us. Nails wouldn't have been any problem for him. He who could have called a legion of angels. We read this morning in Luke's gospel that those who passed by said, you saved others, save yourself. The criminals that hung on both sides, you saved others, save yourself. But what they didn't understand was that had he saved himself, he would have damned us all. That is the true pain of the cross, the true pain of this trip to Jerusalem. And he knew it was coming and he went anyway. His disciples They had a different vision in mind. In their minds, they were going and set up the new kingdom. And Jesus would sit on the throne. And they would vie for positions of power and prestige at his side. They would rule with him. They would reign with him. And he would chase out the Romans. And he would chase out the the hypocrites. And he would set up a pure kingdom, better than David's, better than Solomon's. That was in their minds. That was why they were going to Jerusalem. They'd gladly go. But Jesus went, knowing what exactly would happen. Now, how do we know that Jesus knew what was in store for him? We know because of what he said. Now, I have just cherry-picked verses from the Gospels. But let me share some of those with you. Matthew 16, 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day rise again. Matthew 17, 9, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Matthew 20, 17 to 19, now as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and he said, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the teachers of the law and they will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. Matthew 26, 31 to 32. Then Jesus told them this very night, you will fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Mark 9, 30 to 32. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. And he said to them, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. 
In Mark 10, 32 to 34, they were on their way to Jerusalem when Jesus leading the way and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and he told them what was going to happen to him. We're going to Jerusalem and the son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who would mock him and spit on him, flog him, and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Is there any question that Jesus knew what awaited him? Over and over and over again, he told his disciples, guys, listen up. This is what's going to happen. I'm going to Jerusalem, and this is what's going to happen. But they had these visions dancing around in their heads. That can't be it. This is one of those cryptic sayings of Jesus. That can't be what he's talking about. They would not accept his death, and they could not believe he'd rise again. But Jesus knew why he was going. That's what he said. And it happened. Just as the prophets had said it would happen. And just as Jesus said it would happen. Jesus said of his life, no one takes it from me. But I lay it down of my own accord. It's my decision. I have the authority to lay it down. And the authority to take it up again. What did Jesus say? I'll be crucified. I'll rise again. What did he do? Well, that's the story of Easter. That's why we celebrate. And the Apostle Paul summarizes it probably as good as, as anyone can. Now, brothers, he says, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you when you received and, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one, as to one, abnormally born. What was, what was Paul trying to say here? Paul was trying to say that the scriptures foretold what would happen. And we know that Jesus told them what would happen. And what Paul is saying is, all that came to pass just as, it sa- as they said it would. Every bit of it came to pass. He was crucified, buried, resurrected. What he said happened. Jesus said he would be betrayed. He said he'd be denied, arrested, abused, beaten, crucified. He said he'd do it for sinful mankind. And he said he'd rise on the third day. He said it. And he did it. But the question we need to ask on this day when we celebrate the resurrection is a very simple one. So what? What does it mean? 
Is it just a fact in history or does it mean something for us today? Well, I believe it does. And I'd like to share with you four things that it means. First of all, it means that Jesus is who he said he was. And that's important. The resurrection, you see, seals the deal. There are a lot of people with big talk. A lot of people talk big. But Jesus backed up his big talk with big actions. And that big action was a resurrection. It proved that everything he said about himself was true. It was the exclamation point at the end of his human life. It said, I have the power to back up my words. And he rose again on the third day. He is the Messiah. He is the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. And he's the, and he's the resurrected Lord of life. He is who he said he was. And if Jesus is who he said he was, then you can trust him when he says this. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If he is who he said he was, then he is the way, the only way to the Father. The second truth is this. It means that Jesus has the power over sin and death. You see, Jesus was not merely a good teacher, although he was the best teacher ever. He was not merely a persuasive prophet, though some saw him as such. He was not just a miracle worker, though people lined up to see him do do his thing. He was God in the flesh, the Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. And the writer of Hebrews says, since the children have flesh and blood, He too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. What's he saying here? He's saying when Jesus rose again, it was like grabbing the keys to the power of death. He ripped the keys from Satan, who no longer holds them. Jesus holds the key to life. He holds the key to power over death. And that is what the resurrection confirms. That is what the resurrection proclaims, that Jesus has the power over death. I heard one old guy say, I'm not afraid to die. But I'm not in line to buy a ticket. I understand what he's talking about. There's a lot of good in this life that you can experience. A lot of wonderful things that God has in store for you in this life. But you and I as followers of Jesus Christ should never fear death. It no longer has a sting. The stinger's been ripped out of it. We don't need to fear it because for us to die is gain. That's what Paul said, to live for me, to live is Christ. But to die is gain. 
Now, we, we think of, of death as losing, don't we? And for us, when we have someone who dies, it, it's a loss for us. But for them, if they're in Christ, it's all gain. There's no downside to this. It's all gain. And that's what Jesus gives us in the resurrection. And that is why so many of you smile when you sing that old hymn, Victory in Jesus, because you know it. You embrace it. It's not just a good tune that you can tap your foot to. It declares your faith that you share in the victory of Jesus Christ. It also means that we now have the hope of eternal life. It's not just our sins being washed away. We now have an open door to life. Now, when, when we use the word hope, when we use the word hope, we often use it kind of like wishing. Your team's playing a ball game. Well, I hope they win. What we're saying, that's our wish. That's what we want. Some of you this afternoon, if you don't fall asleep, will be watching the Masters and I don't know who you're pulling for. I'm kind of pulling for Phil Mickelson now. He's coming, coming back from the pack. You know, that's it's a pretty good story to watch as he's coming to the front. And uh, so I, I hope he wins. But when I say that, it's a wish. What's the difference? Well, there's a difference between what we talk about as hoping and what the Bible refers to as hope. Biblical hope is a confident assurance that what is promised will come to pass. That's what biblical hope is. It is a confident assurance that what is promised will come to pass. And that is the kind of hope that we have in Jesus Christ. I, occasionally I'll talk to someone and I'll ask them, do, do, you, do you think you'll be going to heaven when you die? Well, that's a very pointed question. And probably uh, more than 50% of the time, the answer I get is, well, I hope so. Well, I've got to figure out what they mean by that. If they're using hope in the sense of I have a confident assurance that God's going to honor his promise and I'm resting in that, then that's a good use of that word hope. But, you know, I have a sneaking suspicion that most people who say, well, I hope I'll go to heaven, are not quite sure. It's wishing. Well, I'm here to tell you, if you're just wishing to get to heaven, you're fishing in the wrong pond. John said, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have life. So that you may know it. Now, that is not some bragging and boasting on ourselves. It's not saying, well, I know I have eternal life because I've lived such a good life and I've done so many good things in the past. No, that's not it at all. When, you, when I can say that beyond a shadow of a doubt, I know I have eternal life. Do you know who I'm bragging on? The one who hung on the cross, the one who rose from the grave. That's who I'm bragging on because I believe this. That he did everything necessary to pay the price for my sins on the cross. And then when he rose again, he opened the door to life for me forever. It's not because I'm so good, because I'm not. I'm no better than you are. That's not a slam on you. It's just a fact. I'm no better than anyone. I'm saved by grace. 
And I'm, I have a confident assurance that what my Savior did for me sealed the deal. That was all that it took. And that's why Peter could declare, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you. Wow. I have an inheritance. That's being kept in heaven for me. Is that powerful? I mean, I may not have much of an inheritance here on this earth. But I have an inheritance in heaven that God himself is standing guard over. That's hope. That's hope. And the fourth truth is this, when we ask ourselves what this means. And that is that we have the Holy Spirit living in us. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. Now, don't don't get me wrong here. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, God is one. But He's revealed Himself to us in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It does not mess up the unity of God. But that's how He's revealed Himself. And so the Spirit, I have the Holy Spirit. When I became a follower of Jesus Christ, when I gave my heart, my life to Jesus Christ, when I acknowledged Him as Savior and Lord of my life, God did this remarkable thing. He not only made me a new creation, He he baptized me in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came to take up residence in my life. I became a temple of the Holy Spirit, a place where God now lives. And that's powerful stuff. Now, in John's gospel, the 15th chapter, Jesus shared a a disturbing message with his disciples. He told them that he was going to suffer. He was going to suffer. Now, they couldn't believe it. And then he went on to say, and you guys, because you follow me, you're going to suffer too. Now, I guess that's when you're breaking the news to somebody, that's giving them the bad news first. But he followed it with some good news because his disciples didn't like this idea. They especially didn't like the idea of him suffering and leaving them. And so this is what Jesus said, beginning in John 15 and then moving into John 16. When the counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, He will testify about me. In other words, he's going to help you understand me more. Now, I'm going to him who sent me. Yet none of you ask, where are you going? Because I've said these things, you are filled with grief. What things? About suffering and dying and leaving. But I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes... He will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I'm going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. In regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. 
But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said that the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. What Jesus was saying is, when I ascend into heaven, you've had me with you. I've been with you in this place and in this place and in this place. But then there are times that I sent you out and you looked behind you and I wasn't there. And there were times that I would leave and go off by myself and you look around and I'm not there. What he's saying is because I go to the Father, he is going to send the comforter, the counselor, the spirit of truth to come and be with you always. And that is why in Matthew 28, when Jesus is preparing to lift off, when he's preparing to ascend into heaven, he tells his disciples not only what they're to do, to go and make disciples of all nations, but at the very end he says, and I will be with you always to the very end of the age. I don't know if you've ever ever been in a situation, maybe it was with a parent or maybe with a spouse, where you look at them and go, don't leave me here. I I don't want to be here alone. It may have been something scary happening. It may have been in a crowd of people that you didn't know. It may have been in a place that you didn't know. Don't leave me here. Because we know that if that person leaves, they're not with us. Oh, they can be with us in quote-unquote spirit. <laughs> and I'm thinking about you. But they're not there. What Jesus is saying is because I go to the Father and I send the Spirit, I will always be with you. In, in spirit this time for real. Really present with you. And you and I may have a clue as to why that is such a big benefit to us. We need to open our eyes and understand that the Spirit of God chooses to live in us. And what He said to the disciples, He'll say to us, He will help us to understand who Jesus is. He will guide us into all truth. He is there to comfort us. He is there to counsel us. He is there to fill us. He is there to bring peace into our lives. The Holy Spirit of God is... That is one of the greatest factors that we see in the life and the ministry of Jesus is that he doesn't leave us alone. Never, ever, ever will he leave us alone. And so when we come today to celebrate Easter, to celebrate the resurrection, then we want to acknowledge what he said what he did, and what it means for us today. It means that Jesus is who he said he was. It means that he has the power over sin and death. It means that we now have hope of eternal life. And it means that we have the Holy Spirit, God himself, living in us, no matter where we are and no matter what we're going through. This matters so much that I have staked not only my life, 
put my eternity on it. And many of you have too. But in a crowd this size, there's some of you for whom heaven is a wish. It's not a confident assurance. I'm here to tell you that can change. How does it change? Well, we have to accept. We have to accept that Jesus is who he said he was. The Bible puts it this way. To all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not because a man and a woman decided it, but born by the will of God. By the Spirit of God. If you come to the Lord right now and you say, God, and I mean not just, just, just with words, but with your heart, and you say, Lord God, I recognize that if I'm, got, if I'm trying to get there on my own, I don't have a shot. I don't have a shot. Because I know that there's sin in my life, and I know that sin separates me from you, and I know the guilt that comes along with that, and, and God, I know that I can't do it on my own. But I believe that Jesus came not only to live a perfect life, not only to teach great lessons, but he came resolutely setting his face to Jerusalem to die for me on a cross, to pay the price for my sins on that cross, and to rise again to open the door so that I could have life. And God, I believe that today. I embrace that today. And with all my heart, I want to follow Jesus for the rest of my life life and I don't want to ever be alone I want you with me and if you mean it when you pray it then you can bank it in heaven you are his